Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Starting at verse 1. It says, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Taman, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. As we continue here from last week, we recall that there was a time when persecution not only was from without the church, but we had something taking place from within the church through Ananias and Sapphira, the hypocrisy that was arising up that God made a statement of how he feels about that hypocrisy. And as the disciples continued forward, there was persecution. They were told not to continue in teaching in the name of Jesus. They were, they were flogged, they were beaten, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the Lord's sake. And they were still ecstatic for the fact that Jesus is working among them and it's being recognized. We're being persecuted just as the Lord said. And here they're continuing now as the numbers grew. The disciples were increasing. It says that something happens. This is the first time the word disciples is used in the book of Acts. And disciple literally means a, a learner. What's interesting and kind of neat is disciples throughout the Gospels are primarily used referring to the twelve. But in the book of Acts, disciples is primarily used regarding believers. Christians in general. And I think there's a neat transition that's taking place with you have the disciples that were the twelve and now you have the disciples that are encompassing the whole of the church. And so the disciples or these people who are the learners, those who are following after Christ, the believers, their numbers were increasing. And guess what? As the numbers increase, so do the problems. How about that? And so the numbers are increasing. God is doing some great things. Remember, God was adding to the church daily, it said, in chapter 2. Then we saw uh, at least a couple of subtraction with Ananias and Sapphira, minus 2 for sure. Uh, and then we see that the church is now, some translations that might say, multiplying. And it's interesting because that's a lot of times what needs to happen. If God is growing, there needs to be a cleansing so that God can add more and do another or continued work. And that's what he's doing here. And as the numbers are increasing, all of a sudden, there's a problem. It says that there were, the Grecian Jews 
started complaining against the Hebraic Jews. This is basically the Jews who spoke Greek and had adopted a lot of the Grecian culture. They were not being included as much as they thought they should be, but the Hebraic Jews had kind of the, the corner on the market. They were getting taken care of, and the widows of the Grecian Jews were not being taken care of. And there's speculation on why this was happening. There's definitely a racial tension that's taking place, a prejudice, if you will. Even though they were both Jews, these Jews that were Grecian had not been, quote, in the pure ways of the Hebrew culture. They were now learning a different language that wasn't the true language of Hebrew or Aramaic that most of those who were in Jerusalem spoke. And so their culture was a little bit different and they were frowned upon because of these things. And we would be very ignorant if we thought prejudice didn't exist, even among Christians, even among the church. That we have status and we can develop these kinds of attitudes. Have you ever... Talk to someone who doesn't speak your language. They speak a foreign language and you almost, you know, you're, you're frustrated talking with them and you're like, you dumb whatever, you know. It's like, they're not dumb. They just don't speak your language. It's not that they're stupid. It's just you're so self-focused. You think everyone needs to cater to you. It's like, oh, that dumb guy didn't even speak English. It's like, well, no, he wasn't dumb. He's just from another country, you know. Of course he doesn't speak English, you know. And you, you expect everyone to cater to you. And it is frustrating. I know you guys have picked up the phone, have called, you know, computer service or something like that, and someone goes, hello, can I help you? And you're like, what did you say? You know, and you're like, ah, oh, I want someone who can speak English. And you get frustrated. Why are you frustrated? Because they're not catering to you. Because I want you to cater to me. Don't you know who I am? No. <laughs> Neither does half the world. Um, more than half. 99%. 99.9%. But we expect these things. And what was probably happening here is the church is being born. It's being born in the Hebrew culture. And there's a shift taking place as they would go to synagogues. And remember, synagogues weren't necessarily buildings, but they were groups. They might even be a house where people met, where a number of families met. And the church is now going in there. And in a sense, it's kind of assimilating into what was the synagogue. And what they used to go and, and do and meet is now becoming the church. And it was primarily Hebrew. And inside that structure, there was already the means of taking care of those who were in need. And so now there's a shift taking place because more are coming from without. Those who are outside of that culture are coming into the church. But these are already being met and these are being neglected. And so they said, hey, our widows are being neglected. What are you guys going to do about this? And, and they come up to them, and they it says in verse 2, So the twelve, and here's another interesting thing, is this is the first time that we see, and the last time we see the twelve used in the book of Acts. It's no longer the twelve. It's now the church. It includes all the others. And that's the wonderful thing about the book of Acts, is we see that it is, again, inclusive 
we saw Jesus pouring his life into the 12. We constantly read about the 12, how they went with him, how that was his followers. This is the last time we read about the 12. From here on in, it's the disciples, and it refers to those Christian believers, those who are following Jesus, not just the 12. And so they come here to the 12, and they gathered disciples together, all the other believers, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, when we think of waiting on tables, we think of like a busboy or a waitress or something like that. You know, you wait on tables. That's kind of our culture. But this, this isn't really referring to that. What this is most likely referring to is the distribution of money. Remember when Jesus went into the t- temple and he overthrew what? The money changers and the tables, that's what this is referring to. It's referring to those where they would negotiate and take care of the finances with these people. So it wasn't like they were just serving food. It had to do with the tables and those things that were financially connected to this problem, which were the widows and the money that was needed. And he's saying, we don't need to get involved with these money matters. You can only do so much. We need to focus instead on the ministry of the Word of God. And we're going to focus on that for a little bit. The ministry of the Word of God is what they needed to focus on. What is that? The ministry of the Word of God. The Word of God, when we hear that, we automatically think of the body of the Scriptures that we have before us. Remember, as they're writing, as this is being written, the New Testament was not yet compiled together. The Old Testament was, the Old Covenant was there. But a lot of times you're going to see through the book of Acts, especially, you're going to see the word of God or the word of the Lord. And a lot of times what it is referring to is to Jesus. As the Lord said, it is better to give than to receive. As the word of the Lord, and they'll be quoting Jesus. Part of what the Word of God is that's referring to here is the message of the person of Jesus Christ. It is the declaration of who Jesus is. It is definitely focusing on the Scriptures, the Old Testament, as they would go through, as we're going to get into this a little bit further, and we're going to see Stephen had an incredible command of the Scriptures. We saw that Peter did already, as he has shared a number of times, and they were overwhelmed as they saw he was uneducated, but they knew he had been with Jesus. And so it definitely includes the knowledge of the scriptures, but it also includes the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important to understand that because a lot of times what we do, just like on waiting of tables, we assume, well, I guess they're busboys. You know, yeah, God doesn't want them to be busboys. Well, no, what they're referring to in that culture is that money changing and that kind of place where money would be exchanged. Most likely, that's what most believe that refers to because that was what was prominent in that culture. Well, we got to remember when they talked about the word of God, they didn't think of it the way we think of the Bible today. They definitely included the Old Testament scriptures. That was the word of God. When the scripture says all scripture is God breathed, what does that mean? That's referring to the Old Testament. That's the scripture that they knew of. Of course, with us, that includes the New Covenant, the New Testament. Peter said of Paul's writings, they're difficult to understand as are some of the rest of the scriptures. 
Peter included Paul's writings to be as good as Scripture. And so, by no means are we trying to devaluate the Scripture that we have here. I just want you to understand the context that they're saying. The ministry of the Word of God is taking the message of who Jesus is as declared in the Scriptures and as declared by Jesus Himself and proclaiming that to the people. The word that is used here is the word logos, which means a spoken word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. We know that in John chapter 1. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. What is the word? It is Jesus. Jesus is the expression of God stamped in human flesh. The word of God that they are Promoting here is the person of Jesus Christ as declared in Scripture. Jesus said, search the Scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life, but they are that which speak of what? Of me. It's all about Jesus. It focuses on and centers from him, and that's where it spreads out. And so the ministry of the Word of God is the studying of the Scriptures and is the proclamation or preaching, as we're going to see even later, of this message of who Jesus is, the Word made flesh. And so that's what they're talking about. We, we, we need to stay focused on these things. I can't be sitting there saying, okay, one, two, three, four, five, three, one, two, three, four, five, three. And now I have to, okay, I'm supposed to share something. What was I supposed to share? Uh, they can only do so much. And we need to recognize that. We can only do so much. It's unfortunate because what what is happening here is really a great thing. After this problem arises, the church grows. Why? Well, it tells us that they tell them that 12 gathered the other disciples and they said, it's not right for us to give up or neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables Verse 3, brothers, choose. Some translations might say, you choose. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. They didn't choose the seven. They said, you guys choose. I think that's cool. Because I don't have to make every decision. You know, hey, we've got this problem. Fix it. <laughs> you guys choose. <laughs> and he gave some parameters of what that choice needed to include. It needed to include people who were full of the spirit and wisdom. And that's going to be a necessity. I mean, James 3.17 says, The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That's exactly what they need right now. They need that kind of wisdom that is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, impartial, not concerning about the Hebrew or the Grecian widows, and sincere. It's someone who has wisdom and choose. By giving responsibility, the church then grows. 
I think it's interesting. This is the first time we hear the word disciples. It's the last time we hear the word the twelve. Disciples spreads the twelve. Focus is off of them. And then it grows to the rest of the church. Later on to Paul and Paul himself. And so their process is to bring this in. Their focus is to maintain on prayer and the ministry of word. Now, it's interesting because the word prayer that is used here was what they called their worship service, their prayer services. It's kind of funny how words develop meanings. We think of worship, and most of the time we think of music. You know, oh, we're going to come and worship. Well, to a lot of us that might mean, well, we're going to be singing. But worship is more than singing. It includes prayer. It includes our giving of our offering to the Lord. It's not secluded to that. But we've kind of changed it. No, that was the message, you guys. That was, it was powerful. <laughs> the place was shaken. and uh, Anyway. Everyone with me? Everyone okay? Let's see. Everyone's with me. <laughs> too bad I, too bad it wasn't chapter two and the place was shaken uh, so they are continuing to, uh, to give attention to prayer and the ministry and the idea of prayer was their worship service so that's what they called their worship service they'd get together and they have a time of prayer a time of reading of the scripture that was their worship service and that was that's what it was called that was their prayer service so it was the prayer and the ministry of the word was again the proclamation of who Jesus is that understanding of Jesus and proclaiming that to the other people that are there and then it gives a list the proposal pleased the whole group and what a great thing everyone was content what a wise thing to instead of say okay let me see i'm going to choose well he's your friend well, that's, you know, and it, you can get into that. When you start having too much power, it can become a problem. Because then you always, you know, bring your friends on board. It's always someone you know who's sympathetic to your causes, and pretty soon you've got it in your back pocket. You know, ministry is something that I keep close to me and I have control over. I'm so glad that I don't have to be responsible for everything. You know, there are pastors who give counsel concerning finances, and they shouldn't because they're not good with finances. But they think they have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. You have to understand the scripture. You have to be able to teach. And even that is a distinguish between pastors and teachers. You have to care for God's people. If you're going to be a pastor, a teacher needs to know the scripture. But for some reason, we think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the pastor, so I've got to know everything. And you don't. And I don't. So if you ask me for help with your car, forget about it. <laughs> yeah, I've done work on my cars. The greatest moments of the flesh have been with my car. <laughs> I don't need to know everything. God has gifted some people. To do better. There are some pastors who they put the music together. They feel like they have to conduct everything. Because I'm the pastor. And I've 
had problems and struggles with this. As many of you know, I was involved with worship and a worship leader for years, and I could get very picky. You know, I'd probably have done this song, and I, I would do, mm, you know, what you, that key, and I could start really nitpicking, <laughs> wanting to get things. Stand, <laughs> stand still, Danny. But one of the greatest, actually, joys to me is to not do that and to be able to be ministered to. And I've been so blessed as Jan- Danny's been leading us in worship. Janny. As, Jan- as Danny's been leading us in worship, I- I've been able to be ministered to when I don't worry about having to be in charge. Every now and then we'll talk, he'll call me and say, what are we talking about? Or we'll, we'll kind of talk about things. But I want him to run with that. I, that's... That's for him. So you guys choose. Seven people. And they pick seven people. And it's an interesting crowd that they pick. Most of their names are Greek names, which is interesting. Only Nicholas is mentioned as where he actually came from, from Antioch, which is a Grecian city. But the others are all Greek names, which in a sense makes sense. Because those were the ones who were having problems. The Grecian... Jews were the ones that were complaining. So, well, let's get some people who are among them so they can see this is unbiased. We don't care. But the first one they picked out, Stephen. And I love Stephen's name means crown. Isn't that beautiful? Crown. It means crown. And as we're going to read later, Stephen is the first martyr of the church. He's an incredible Bible expositor. As he shares with them, it's just amazing. It dumbfounds them. It just shuts them up. Philip was an evangelist. We see him in Acts chapter 8. The other name there, Prochorus, we're told in church history that he was actually an assistant to the apostle John. He worked with John, traveled with John, and when John was finally exiled, he ended up moving on and he also became a martyr. He was the bishop of uh, Nicodema. And later on, he was martyred. And then the last one there mentioned, Nicholas. It's believed that Nicholas later became a sect of what is known as the Nicolaitans. That's talked about in Revelation chapter 2 that the Lord hates. And the Nicolaitans were those who lord over the people. Laity meaning the people. Nicolaitan is lording over the people. They controlled the people and kind of dominated them, told them what to do, told them what to think. It's believed that that's who he was. They're not 100% sure on that. Prochorus, they're pretty sure there's enough history to back that up. And Philip and Stephen we have, obviously, here in the book of Acts. But with these people, we see the possibility for development. Stephen, Philip, and even this Nicholas, if it's true that he became the one who the Nicolaitans developed and kind of deterred from the gospel, there is incredible potential for those who are given responsibility. Potential for good or for bad. That's always the case. The more a person has power, the more a person has responsibility, the more they can do that is either good or bad. It's true with wisdom. It's true with those things. If, if you've got a person who's a genius, 
Well, they can do incredible good or they can do incredible harm. It really depends on what they yield themselves to. And so with this responsibility, the church grew, but these men became prominent. They became useful. And what would have happened if the twelve said, well, we need to make a decision, and they kept it among ranks. We're going to keep us twelve. We're going to make all the heavy decisions. We're the ones who are going to to make the decisions. Well, it would have limited what God wanted to do. And so it's real important to have this open idea that even though someone might err, you still need to give away ministry. You can't guarantee anybody. You can't guarantee what someone else is going to do. You're responsible for you. Whenever I do marital counseling, I let people know half of this marriage is in your hands. That's the half you're responsible for. You can't guarantee the other half, but you can make sure half of this marriage is good as gold. If you're responsible for yourself. That's what we need to do is be responsible for ourselves and entrust those other things to God and to people and have faith in God. God is going to work, but we need to give away responsibility. Allow people to grow. Allow people to develop in their gifts. And we're going to talk about that more Sunday as we cover this a little bit more in depth. And then it lastly says, or not lastly, but later on it says in verse 7, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Well, they just gave away a bunch of ministry. It produced rapidly. And and it says, And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why does that mention it there? A large number of priests. Well, the priests would be the ones who would probably experience some of the greatest persecution and hatred. But a large number of them came to faith early on. And think about it. The priests were those who took care of things in the temple. They were there who took care of the ministry needs, the offerings. They cleaned up and, and got rid of the offerings and the, you know, all the guts and things of the offerings. I mean, they were kind of responsible for cleaning up, taking care of maintaining the rituals there in the temple. Their ministry revolved around the temple. What happened when Jesus died in the temple? There was a significant event with the temple. You guys remember the veil? It was torn. Now, I don't know what you think the veil is. A lot of times we think it's like a curtain, like, you know, you go to the the mall and they have one of those photo booths, you know, and there's a little curtain. That wasn't the curtain. That wasn't the veil. The veil was huge. A.T. Robertson says that the veil was 10 inches thick. And it was 60 feet by 30 feet and took 100 priests to handle it and to put it in place. So we're not talking about a curtain that's, you know, just a little thing. We're talking, have you ever gone into a movie theater and they have those big, you know, velvet things? We're talking that's small as far as 10 inches thick. This thing is huge. It is impossible to tear that thing. And the temple has got someone in and out of it all the time. It's not like they're going to have someone go in there and do a prank in the temple. 
You're not going to do that. I know, let's go in there, tear the... It's not going to happen. Not only is it not going to happen, it's impossible. What do you do when you're a priest and you walk into the temple and that veil is torn? And all this is going on about Jesus. You're going to wonder what's going on here. You're going to be thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on? It'd be like an earthquake, <laughs> but bigger. It would shake you up big time. And then there's these followers of Jesus that are doing amazing things and talking about him being alive, risen from the dead. 500 saw him at one time. You'd start putting the dots together. Something amazing just happened in this temple. Something amazing is happening outside this temple. What is going on? And no doubt you would be curious, and no doubt they went and their curiosity started to intrigue them, and they started finding out about these things. And as they started looking into this, many of them became obedient to the faith. I love that, obedient to the faith. What a beautiful term, to obey faith. They didn't obey the law. They obeyed the faith, the faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, faith is always connected to something. Faith isn't like the force out there, you know, untangible. Faith is connected to something. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they were obedient in the faith. And then in verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Grace and power. The word power doesn't appear that often before this time. Matthew and Mark don't use it at all. And John uses it only four times in his gospel. Luke uses it eight times in his gospel. And then we see it 16 times here in the book of Acts. And then Paul uses it over a hundred times throughout his epistle. The word power starts to snowball. As the gospel is moving forward, the power of God is expanding and is growing. And here he's full of God's grace and power. Now what a great combination grace and power. 
Because if someone's going to have power, I sure hope they also have grace. If someone has power over me, I sure hope they're graceful. You ever gone before a judge? You know, you had a ticket or something, and you go before the judge, and what do you want? Lord, please have mercy. I know you can throw me in jail, or, you know, depends on what the crime is. I mean, I just find $300, whatever it is. I, I know you can do this, but you can also have leniency. Be gracious to me. Grace and power. What a beautiful combination. And if we are ever in positions of power, may we also have grace. May it be tainted with that. May it be influenced by that. And as he has full of grace and power and he did miraculous wonders and things, there became this opposition to them. And they began to argue with Stephen. I love verse 10. It says, But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. There's something about this guy. They could not stand up against him. He was overpowering him. Colossians 2.3, it says, In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. Well, Stephen had Christ. In fact, it was by the Spirit whom he spoke. And then Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 15, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus said this was going to happen. I am going to give you words and wisdom that's going to dumbfound them. And they couldn't say anything against him. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? I want that kind of wisdom. That when someone is opposing me or the gospel, the message of Christ, that I have the ability to present to them things that they cannot question or argue. That they are unable, they are, they are left bankrupt in the things that they would have to say that I am speaking in the power of God that is seasoned with the grace of God. And it just stops them. That's what I want. That's what we all want. How do we get that? Well, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Get to know Christ. You get to know Christ, you get to know all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you start acting like Christ, start emulating Him, abiding in Him, those things are going to rub off on you. So that you too are able to confound them because you speak in the wisdom of the Spirit who speaks through you. And so, you know, what do you do? If you if you can't contend with them, what do you do? You slander. That's all you can do. And you guys know that. You see that. I mean, it happens in elections all the time. You know, well, I'll just start slandering. If I disagree with someone, it's easiest to slander. You know, just call them the Antichrist. You know? Yeah, your candidate's the Antichrist. There, how about that? Well, Okay, there, there it goes. <laughs> what can I say? Who wants to vote for the Antichrist? You know, that, that just ends that argument right there. It, it's like we, we're, there's no more reason. We'll just start slandering. And Christians do that too. 
People who follow Jesus are quick to do that too. You guys know that. If anyone is against what their beliefs are, they'll slander them. Just throw out the name. Throw Antichrist out there. They're the Antichrist. Start slandering them. That way you don't really, I, you know, you're not having to deal with the argument. You'll just start slandering them. That's what they did, Stephen. Secretly, verse 11, they persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place, against the law. Now notice those two things, because these two things are really important to the next chapter. The things that they accused Stephen of was the holy place, the temple, and Jerusalem, and the law. So you've got two things that they're accusing him against. Speaking against the holy place, the temple, and Jerusalem, and against Moses and the law. And so they say in verse 14, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. There it is again, the place and the customs, the law that Moses gave to them. And as they're all sitting there looking intently at Stephen, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this is a serious situation. He is on the spot. He's talking and he's not being able to be just confronted, so they have to start slandering him. So now they start making lies up about him, and now he's before the Sanhedrin. They're all looking at him, and they say to him in verse 1 of chapter 7, they ask him, are these charges true? These charges have serious weight behind them. There's nothing more serious than the things that they've mentioned, talking about the temple, Jerusalem, and the law. You talk about those things, you can be put to death if you talk against those things. So this is no, you know, speeding ticket. This is a serious offense. And now people are lying about you. Making up things that you didn't say and you're here defending your life. How would you feel? What would your reaction be? What would your countenance be? You know, if they were to say, and, you know, they were sitting here and they looked and they saw that his face was one of panic. You know, I mean, it's one of tears and, you know, what, what would it be? How would it be? How would you be represented here? And why is it that Stephen, his face here is lit with the glory from another world? His faith is a glow from heaven. There is something that we need to understand that is foundational to this Christian life. And it's the relationship that we have with the living God. If God be for me, Paul said, who can be against me? Do you believe that? Do you belong to God and is he for you? Because if he's for you, who can be against you? 
if you have that relationship and you know the living God, there is comfort, there is security, there is a strength that will hold you in times like this or in other times when the world around you is crashing down. When sickness inflicts your family, when pain, when sorrow, when loss comes in like a wave, wants to overpower you, there is an anchor to your soul. It's like that song, It is well. It is well with my soul. Why? I know to whom I belong. If God is for me, who can be against me? I can stand before these people being accused falsely, have my life on the balance, and they're lying about me, and my face can shine with heaven because I belong to Him. And it influences me right here, right now, right where I'm at. So it doesn't matter my circumstances. What matters is the relationship of my heart with my God. And Stephen had that. Do you have that? Do you have that where that is what holds you through those times and those trials? Because you and I need that. We need that. That's what matters because circumstances like this come up. We talked about Cynthia and Russ, the, the trials that they're going through. We are not guaranteed health. We're not guaranteed the prosperity. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What does that mean? It means if you belong to me, don't worry about it. I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Stephen recognized that. He knew that. And so they asked him, are these charges true? Remember, what are the charges? Are you attacking Jerusalem? And are you attacking the law? Because as we start reading this, it seems like, what, what's he saying here? But just incredible wisdom, again, given by the Spirit of God. In verse 2 it says, he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Mesopotamia, that's Babylon, Iraq. Where did God appear to Abram? Was it in Jerusalem? No. It was in Mesopotamia. That's where God appeared to him. In fact, one of the things we're going to see absent from this whole sermon that he gives, basically, is... Jerusalem or the temple? God is working, but we're not in Jerusalem. Hmm, how about that? And what I'm wondering is, when did they catch on? Because at some point they're going to say, hey, wait a minute, he's talking about us. And I just, you wonder when that light, because he's doing it so smooth. I mean, it's just, bam, and then just going to nip them. And so he says, God said, go to the land, I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time, Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. 
and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. 400 years? Our country's only been around 200 plus a few. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Just perspective. Think about this. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Verse 7, But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, And afterward they will come out of that country, speaking of Egypt, and worship me in this place. He gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, he's introducing another character. They were jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Where was he? He was in Egypt. And that's where God was with him. And rescued him from all his troubles. God rescued him where? In Egypt. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on the first visit. On the second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph went for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and his fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abram had bought for, from his sons of Hamar and Shechem for a certain sum of money. So now he's introducing Joseph. Joseph was sold as a slave. Why? Because his brothers were jealous. Who also was betrayed because of jealousy? Jesus. We're going to start seeing a whole lot of similarities between Jesus and Joseph. I mean, there's a lot going on between those two. Jo Joseph is a type of Christ. He he's, was blessed, but it wasn't in the promised land. He was betrayed by his brothers. Jesus was betrayed by his brothers. He was wrongfully accused in Potiphar's home. Jesus was wrongfully accused. In Zechariah 13.6, it says, If someone asks him, What are these wounds on your body? He will answer, The wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Speaking of Jesus, I, I was betrayed by my own people. Joseph was betrayed by his own people. And so here there's jealousy. God work is with Joseph and it's in Egypt. He's blessing him there in Egypt. Verse 17, it says, As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Where was he born? Egypt. He was born, he was no ordinary child. He was, where am I? Placed in Pharaoh 20. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses 
was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 45 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Yesterday, when Moses heard this, he fled Midian to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So what's happening here? Well, Moses' own people are not recognizing him, just like Jesus. They, He tried to go in and help them. They wouldn't have it, just like Jesus. He was mistreated. And the man who was mistreating him pushed him, and then he fled and he went out to the foreigner. What Stephen is doing, we're going to be stopping here, what Stephen is doing is he's saying, these things that you hold very sacred, the temple, Jerusalem, God did not start his work there. The work of the law that you are so set on, it was rejected by the people in the beginning and it did not take place or originate here. And so what Stephen is doing is saying, you guys are so set on this, why? And the things that you are saying that you are for, well, your forefathers and your descend or ancestors, they were against those who were promulgating this. They took Joseph, made him a slave. They kicked Moses out, just as you have done with Jesus. There's no way we're going to finish chapter 7, so i got to stop somewhere. As, Joseph, as Stephen is presenting this case, his case before them, what he's doing is bringing to them what they believe and showing their error in their belief. You're holding to traditions of men, not of God. You care so much about Jerusalem, you're making this a big deal, but God appeared to Abram when he was in Mesopotamia. God worked among Joseph when he was in Egypt. Moses came out of Egypt. The work God began did not originate here. It originated somewhere else. And they persecuted Joseph. They persecuted Moses. It should make them start thinking. As he's talking, like I said, I'm wondering when the lights click. Because we're going to see later on the fuse blows. And they're just, you know, they see red and the steam's coming out of their ears. And they, they just lose it. Because he nails them. But he does it with power and with grace. He does it in a way that just, there is opportunity for you to see the truth if you really want to. If you don't, then you will be just like your forefathers. 
we need to take heart and recognize that the same thing applies to us. We are going to be on one side or the other. We will either defend our traditions to the death because that's what it is, our traditions. Or we will be open to the work of God and what he is doing in the lives of people. We will either be prejudiced towards people because of our focus on ourselves. We will either try and hold on to things, developing our own kind of kingdom, or we will represent Jesus, give things away, and entrust that work to other people, not try to lord over people, but actually serve people. Paul said, we didn't come to lord over any of you, but to increase your joy. That's what we need to do, is try and increase people's joy, not to bound them with rules and regulations that hold them down. And we see such a contrast from what's happening in the chapter 6 of Acts where the disciples are saying, you guys decide. Make a decision. Take care of it. Here's seven people. You guys go. And now we see disciples mean Christians. And then we have those Pharisees, those Sanhedrin that are holding on to that power, wanting to keep it for themselves, not wanting anyone to rock the boat. Such opposites. What do we want to be? We want to be as Jesus, of course, which Stephen is following in his steps so clearly, so beautifully. And in this moment, I just... Have you ever seen someone whose face looks like an angel? Or they're just glowing? Have you ever seen someone who's maybe been had an encounter with God and they're, they're just lit up? They're just a glow. There's something that's taking place within them that shows without them. What do you look like? I mean, don't mean physically. I mean, like, you know, my hair's a little gray, but... Are you a glow with heaven? Or are you Eeyore on the earth? I don't know. I guess the job's no good. Nothing good's going to come out of this, I can tell. Or is your face a glow with heaven? Oh, the Lord is with me. Who can be against me? I have hope in the darkest situation. And this is convicting to me, and I hope it's convicting to you too. We can be so consumed with our problems that we lose sight of heaven. And our focus is on us and not on God and what he is doing. God has so much that he has done and wants to do for us. Do you realize it? You can be standing before a court that's going to accuse you and condemn you to death, and you can be aglow because of what has been given to you already. Where are you? What do you look like? Are you aglow with heaven, or are you polluted with the things of this earth? What do you look like? I pray that our faces would be aglow, that we would be able to reflect heaven, because that's where our hearts are. And that's what drives us. Let's pray. God, I just get so excited when I read about these men and women who were so yielded to you that 
it was evident, not only in the things they said, but even in how they looked. God, I want to be that kind of person. And forgive me, Lord, for being so self-absorbed. Forgive me for worrying about my comforts above your heart and your concerns. God, I pray that we would have the same focus and attitude that Stephen had. Lord, that we would be filled with your power, but first with your grace. Lord, I pray that we would represent you and reflect you. That we would be evidence of who you are. That people would not be able to withstand the wisdom because of the spirit within us which is your spirit. And Father, you've told us that in Christ are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, may we desire to know you. The power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. That we might partake of those things with you, Lord. Bless, Lord, we pray, your word in our hearts. May it Take deep roots within us and produce fruit for your honor. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name.